1 Samuel, in chapter 15, we will read the entirety of the chapter. I'd like to ask you to follow along as I read out loud. This is the most important thing we're going to do today. 1 Samuel, chapter 15. And Samuel said to the Lord, the Lord, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot, 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart. Go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs, and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Saul was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on, and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission which the Lord has sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, To obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as of the sin of divination, 
and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, Saul went up to his house in Gabeah of Saul. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can kind of surmise the main point of this passage pretty easily. It's found in Samuel's exhortation to Saul, his correction to him in verses 22 and following to 23. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. I mean, there it is, pretty laid out pretty plainly. To obey is better than sacrifice. That might sound a little bit confusing and church jargony because we could say, well, goodness, doesn't he command us to sacrifice? Even as the church, we're commanded to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, right? And we certainly know in the Old Testament there was a lot of sacrificing going on. But as you see this story, Saul was given a task... He partially obeyed it, and he was rebuked for partially obeying. His excuse was that he had a better idea than what he was commanded to do. And now we see how easy it is to interpret this passage, right? How easily we probably find ourselves coming up with other alternatives to what God has clearly said and reasoning out in our own hearts that this would make things better. There are two main things I think I want to tackle in this passage that I think will be helpful to us. And they're, of course, contained in the title as well. It's a matter of obedience and the matter of an unchanging God to whom we are called to obey. We've already asked the kids whether God changes, but let's ask this question again 
do people change? It's an interesting thing for the day and age that we live in because in one sense, the culture would say, yes, people do change. Certainly, people would want to believe that people get better and in that sense, then, they change. The whole idea of progressing in humanity and in our culture and in society is the hope that we will progress to a place that is better than where we started. In that sense, yes, people do change. And yet, in another sense, people don't change. We are who we are. And you better not tell me who I am. I'll tell you who I am. I'll tell you what I like. I'll tell you what I think. And I need you not only to accept what I think, but to celebrate what I think. To promote what I think. You may be thinking in some specific circumstances right now, but this is pervasive in all of our culture. Do people change? No, in one sense they stay the same. But in another, we do. But only according to what we would like to change, right? It's an old French parable that I tried to learn how to pronounce in French, but French is not something I have. Anyway, it's a French saying that goes, the more things change, the more they what? Stay the same. You know, to me, that's kind of like that phrase, it is what it is. It kind of just feels useless, like redundant and unnecessary. But smarter people than me have said those kinds of things at more pointed moments to explain that though we see change happening in certain directions all around us, we also see that there are some things that always stay the same in regards to humans and their nature. It was Solomon who said that there is nothing new under the sun. Everything that will be done has already been done. Certainly from the divine perspective, God is not one to be surprised by something that we might come up with here in our little lives. We fear change. We hope for change. But at the bottom level of it, we really just think everyone else should do it. Maybe not us. When it comes to God, then we have to deal with this that we introduced earlier, the immutability of God. I wonder if that is a category in your mind as you look at Scripture. Because it's something that we need to think about, particularly at our passage today. We know that people change. We know that people stay the same. Is that true of God? Does he in some ways change and yet in other ways still say the same? The classical orthodox theology of immutability says that God cannot and does not change. And for us this morning, it is important for us to prioritize true obedience to an unchanging God. Because the God who required your obedience yesterday, guess what? He requires it today. And guess what about tomorrow? He's going to require your obedience yet again. Certainly in that sense, God is not one who changes. Look with me again, and I hope you still have your Bibles open, um, to verses 22 and 23. This is, uh, in one sense, the great call of this passage, in to obey is better than sacrifice. It's a beautiful blend of both poetry and of Christian priority. To start with the matter of obedience. To prioritize true obedience. And, And you can probably imagine what I mean by saying true obedience in comparison to what Saul did. Saul was convinced that he had truly obeyed the Lord, wasn't he? He said it twice over. I have done the will of the Lord. I have completed my mission. 
And yet Samuel shows him that he fell very, very far from what God had expected. Saul was one who would have hoped to be serving a God who is not immutable. He would have hoped that the God who said, go and utterly destroy man, woman, and child, and we'll get to that in a moment about the severity of that, but the God who said, leave none alive the day before, Saul would have been one who would hope that once you see what I did with this, though, you might really like it. And oh my goodness, does this bring me back to teaching middle schoolers yet again, week in and week out, how I would give an assignment. And in my human finiteness and inability to see all things, certainly there were some times that some assignments that I came up with might have been too hard for middle schoolers or too easy or whatever it might be. And there were times I can remember going over to the table of a particularly smart student who knew that they were smart and that's where all the trouble always came. I would say, hey, what are you doing? I'm doing your project. No, you're not. What are you actually doing? Oh, this? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Well, I heard what you said. I saw what you wrote on the board, but I decided to do something just slightly different with my project. I know you said to use this size of poster board, but I thought I would use the smaller one because I had to split it with my buddy who also forgot to uh, do his poster board. Right? To obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than to come up with an alternative that sounds way better than originally planned. So we go over to one particularly smart student who would find a way to explain his way around an assignment. We go to another one who would would fail miserably in that, but it would still remind me of the fact that we just don't quite get obedience the way that God explains it to us in his word. He requires obedience. He requires full obedience. And one of the big reasons why he requires full obedience is because our God is indeed immutable, unchanging. Now, there's an obvious tension in this passage, and that is around the word regret. If you would look down um, at verses 11 and then go over to verse 35, what you'll see is in both cases, God confessing in one sense to Samuel that he regrets making Saul king. Now, that would be one thing if we just had those two verses, and we could kind of say, maybe we need to change our theology a little bit. Maybe it is simpler than we think. And maybe God does, actually, because he regrets. Maybe he changes. But then look at verse 29. Because as Saul is being rebuked by Samuel, Samuel goes out of his way to point out in verse 29, which is on my next page, The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regrets. I mean, Saul, Samuel, rather, didn't accidentally say this. He said it twice, intentionally. So two times we see God saying, I regret making Saul king, but yet two times we are also told, God is not a man that he should have regret. And do you notice the difference in the statements? The regret word in Hebrew is the exact same. But there's something that Samuel gives us in verse 29 that's really helpful. And that is that he is not like a man that he should lie or like a man that he should regret. We can easily surmise then that there is a difference between the regret of humans and the regret of God. 
Okay, same word, but there's going to be a difference. Not just because God is God and we are humans, but because there is a different purpose in his regret. Interestingly, this mentioning of, of God not being like a man that he should have regret, and the mentionings of regret all around it are all what we call anthropomorphism, which is to attribute human qualities to a non-human being or thing. So in this biblical, biblically literature, literary tool that we see so clearly being used here, Samuel is also saying something that sounds completely opposite to it. It's almost as if what we're getting is, God is like you, and he is not like you. Right? He is so incredibly different from you, and yet, there's a lot of similarities. Now, it would be very easy for us to take this and say, well, we're supposed to believe that God cannot change nor be changed, but when I read this, it sounds like something that we just have to put a big question mark in our minds over in the category of the immutability of God, that we can't really know this, right? What we see in it seems to be a contradiction, but there's another word that is similar to contradiction that's really helpful here, and that is paradox, A paradox is when two contradictory features or qualities are present in the same thing. Two contradicting features or qualities. Paradox doesn't have to mean contradiction. We could see more examples of this in Scripture, but let's leave it at this. Augustine says this about the immutability of God. You change your ways or your actions, leaving unchanged your plans. You change your ways or actions and leave unchanged your plans. This then seems to be evident in Saul's story. God appointed Saul as a king like the nations according to the request of Israel. But now we see that he is regretting. He is turning away. Now regret for us, we think about regret as as, as being something that involves guilt and involves poor choices and involves not taking the better way. But regret can also just simply mean to suffer grief. You know, you can regret the actions of your children, even if your children's actions had nothing to do with your parenting whatsoever. Because you're able to suffer grief. And this is what God is doing in his regret. That seems to be enough for understanding immutability. If you have more questions about that, it's a very fun um, theological topic to explore and definitely worth your time. But let's come back to the story of our passage. In verses 1 through 9, we see Saul taking his command and saying, all right, great, let me get a count of everybody. Saul's always counting. Did you notice that? And this is particularly an interesting count because the last time we saw him count, we saw him count about 600 soldiers. He's got quite a few many more than that. He has quite a strong army. And that strong army is probably in the heart of Saul creating a deep-rooted sense of pride over his own accomplishments, but also a sense of fear of losing control of it. He's given this command to take out the Amalekites, and it seems almost out of narrative. We've been mostly concerned with the Philistines, haven't we? The Amalekites haven't seemed to be bothering Israel at all. But God says, I have marked down what the Amalekites did to Israel. Do you remember what the Amalekites did? I don't readily remember these kinds of things when I come to this passage. But in Exodus chapter 17, as Israel was leaving Egypt and on the way to the Promised Land, the Amalekites attacked Israel. God saved them from their enemies, of course, but he marked there that 
I will bring vengeance and justice on Amalek for what they did. Albeit, he ends up doing it around 500 years later. Why? Is it because he changed his mind? Because he goes back and forth a little bit? I'm not sure if I'm going to do it or not, and it's going to take me about 500 years to decide. What a pathetic sounding God, right? No, that's not it at all. We know clearly that there's a principle in Scripture that Peter particularly helps us understand. That to the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And we're told also in the New Testament that we should count the patience of God as salvation. So though we're not told exactly a verse that says, hey, God held off for 500 years because, we can take a principle of what we know to be true about God, that when he acts in patience, he's acting for the case of salvation. Perhaps to make a case to Amalek and to the people therein that they need to repent, that they need to seek the one true God, and clearly they chose not to. The command of God to Saul then remained the same as what he said originally, to bring utter destruction to Amalek. This is another one of the points in this passage that we could spend not only one sermon, but a sermon series exploring. How is it that a good and loving God can say to an entire nation, I'm going to kill all of you, and not just the soldiers that have signed up for battle, but I'm going to kill the wives of the soldiers. I'm going to kill the children. And again, on top of this, you guys, the Bible is very clear, and there is no room to argue for what it says. He says not only the men, women, and children, but also the infants. That's pretty brutal. That's kind of hard to hear on a Sunday morning, isn't it? This is one of those things that I think it is necessary for us to wrestle with in our Christian life as we're trying to understand God's word. How easy is it for us to say, hey, please don't mention this. You seem to be going the right direction talking about the immutability of God. Let's go back to that. And while I'm not going to make the whole sermon about his destruction of everyone in Amalek, I am going to implore you to seek out why God does this. Not only is it true that God makes it very clear that he will fulfill his word, it is also true that our sense of justice and God's sense of justice is very different. And there may even be points where we look at God's justice and God's word and say, I don't think that that is right. And it is in those moments that we have to consider, do I truly believe the God of the Bible? Because for me to know that God is good and just and only does what is right doesn't mean that I have to understand why those things are right. And it may be the fact that there's no massive footnote about the justice of God in this chapter. It's because God is asking you at the place of your heart, are you willing to follow me even if you don't understand what I'm doing? Are you willing to obey me even if you don't get it? Now, Saul's problem with the utter destruction that he was called to do wasn't because he saw an injustice in God's commands, but rather that he saw a better way Specifically for us, we might look at this and say, well, I would never do it that way. We're doing the exact same thing that Saul's doing at the heart of it. To say that I see a better way, Lord. We don't see the internal perspective that God has. And so, Saul is met with a warning, with a correction. In verses 10 through 16, we have God and Samuel talking about the regret that God feels. And Samuel cries out to the Lord throughout the night over the matter of Saul's uh, removal from kingship and his disappointment over that. He says, I regret this. 
Then we see this fascinating thing that Saul, how lost he is in regards to what he has done that is disobedient. He goes and actually makes a monument for himself. He actually, and it says particularly for himself. In his mind, he is the good little boy that deserves a pat on the head from God for doing everything that he said to do. And of course, when Samuel meets him with his instruction and his rebuke, Saul says, I've completed the, word of, the work of the Lord. I've done what he's asked me to do. And then we have Samuel's rebuke. We have Samuel's correction, his instruction, the poetic priority of true obedience. There's a fascinating thing in uh, verses 24 through 30 that happens as Saul is being left by Samuel in the dust and he sees him and he reaches out for his cloak and he tears the bottom of his robe. And Samuel turns around and says, funny thing that just happened there, that's what God's doing with you. God is tearing the kingdom from you and you will not have it. The robe is torn Samuel explains that the glory of Israel is not like a man that he should lie, nor that he should have regrets in the way that humans have regrets. Saul's final plea is that you would just return with me. Would you just come back so that I can go before the elders, so I can go before the people, so I can go before the Lord. He's clinging to Samuel as the intermediary that he believes he needs, not ultimately to make his relationship right with God again, but rather to save face. Give him the confidence that he needs so he can continue doing what God has already said is over for him, namely the kingship. We see the regret of God and we see the regret of Saul. And they regret according to their character, God to his and Saul to his as well. Why do we need to prioritize true obedience to the unchanging God? Because we are changing people. Yes, changing in some ways that are good, Right? If we are in Christ, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next, step by step. There is a good change that's going on. But there are also changes sometimes where we go back to our old way of thinking. We must prioritize true obedience to our unchanging God. Because obedience to the unchanging God stabilizes our changing hearts and minds in Him. I think it's a very great practice that many Christians do to sit up in bed every morning and let the first words or first thoughts in their minds or out of their mouths be, Lord, what do you want me to do today? What is your will for today? Even though this person knows that they have exactly five minutes to get their teeth brushed, get their shoes on, get out the door, get the kids ready also before all that, hopefully before you get out the door, right? Even though there's all those kinds of things that you know needs to happen, can you take a moment and say, My priority is actually true obedience to God, even in the midst of all the changes and choices that I have to make today. If we're not prioritizing that, we're leaving ourselves open to the same issue that Saul faces in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. Another middle school illustration for this morning. One of my favorite things about teaching was every other year we would do a Washington, D.C. trip, and we would always try to make it to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And we spent many minutes... And many reminders on these, for these kids to remember to stand quietly during their time at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, particularly because we wanted to make it there for the changing of the guard, which is such an incredible ritual. If you've never seen it, highly recommend it if you go to Washington, D.C. But the thing that I enjoyed the two or three times that we went 
was, of course, the obedience of my kids. They actually got it in this case. I never had any trouble with any of them during um, the changing of the guard at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. But there were always some other kids, right? Somebody else's kids, somebody else's students. And I always like to make a point because the kids that either were standing too close or, or being too loud or whatever were loudly rebuked by this you know, fully armed and highly decorated soldier who was doing this very honorable and coveted position with his booming voice in the temple-like structure. I mean, there wasn't, a sh- <laughs> there wasn't anybody standing still after that. We were all kind of shaking in our boots. It was fascinating to see that these kids that were treating something with levity that deserved respect and honor and solemnity were immediately changed by the effect of that voice and the authority that it carried. They realized in that moment that their disobedience that they thought wasn't a really big deal. What are we doing? We're just talking. What are we doing? We're just standing over here and standing over here. What's the difference? They realized, like Saul had to learn in this chapter, Sin is no minor thing. And the way that we see the severity of our sin is particularly in the context in which we sin. The loud teens, the students at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, they were allowed to be loud in other places. They were also not allowed to be loud in other places. But particularly what was different between the classroom and the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier was the solemnity and seriousness of the location and the person to whom the offense was made. So it was with Saul. He didn't understand that his disobedience was such a big deal because he didn't understand the unchanging God to whom he disobeyed. He rejected immutability. He rejected the unchanging nature of God. He believed that what he could come up with would be a better idea than what God had originally planned. Saul's disobedience shows an idolatrous view of God who is more concerned with what his people can do to enhance his reign rather than to simply obey his reign. Saul thought he was offering something impressive to God. He thought he was enhancing the will of God. And in it, he rejected the unchanging nature of God. Saul's job was to declare the immutability of God, to declare a God who is unchanging. That would have been the overall message of the destruction of Amalek, to say, look what God did. And people would say, well, goodness, that was 500 years ago. Yes, but our God is unchanging. Instead, Saul acts like a salesman, going out and improving on a situation rather than simply obeying. Did you notice that what was saved for devotion, which was ultimately what was to be the sacrifice. You know, they said, hey, we saved the best of the sheep and the cattle and all this to offer as a sacrifice. Well, the instruction was to devote everything to destruction. And that idea of devotion was essentially to say, Amalek as a whole is the devotion, is the sacrifice. And yet it says that they only sacrificed, they only devoted what was actually despised and worthless. What they saw as things that they couldn't gain anything from. Let's offer that as a sacrifice. Do you know that this is why the instruction in the Torah and the law is to not use a sickly little lamb, not to use a sickly old goat, not to use something that you have no use for that you can offer to God, but rather to offer something that is full of potential and of hope and of promise. 
That is why a spotless young lamb is the prescribed sacrifice that we find picturing Christ. All that was despised and worthless is what they devoted to destruction. Devotion was to be the sacrifice, and yet they kept the best so that they could share in the glory of Israel, that they could share in the benefits to what this battle, because ultimately you could see the soldier's mindset. Hey, shouldn't we be taking care of the Philistines? Well, God says we're going after Amalek. What do we care about Amalek? What do we get out of this? Maybe we could get something out of this. Maybe if we change God's command a little bit. Now Saul, Saul paints this picture for us. He says, hey, I listen to the voice of the people instead of the voice of God, right? But Samuel's exhortation to him is, even though you're so little in your eyes, even though you think, oh, oh, I was just bossed around by the mean soldiers that I'm supposed to be king over. He says, aren't you king? Aren't you the head over Israel? And so Saul is rejected from his position because he has rejected true obedience to the unchanging God. Instead, his disobedience has declared a God who changes, and that is idolatry. We must live lives that declare the unchanging nature of God that is not shifting to and fro with the waves of culture or with the waves of our own heart. You know, we blame so much on culture, but truly it is our hearts that apart from Christ is just the same as the rest of culture. We all would like in one sense to see a changing God who tomorrow might say, you know, that sin that you've been dealing with that you feel like I'm telling you to not do, you know, why don't you just forget about it? Changing God has great appeal when it comes to our changing priorities. We cannot hold on to a false view of God. We cannot do what Saul's done here. True repentance is better than saving face. And that is why Samuel, though he does ultimately go with Saul, doesn't restore Saul to the kingship. He's done. He is no longer king in the eyes of God. There's a consequence to disobedience that pronounces a changing God. That consequence is that just as we reject the word and the character and the nature of God, God rejects us. Particularly for Saul, it was in the context of kingship. But if we mark the whole of our lives with disobedience to God, even though we are a people that believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, we don't believe in salvation by works. We don't believe that God accepts us because of our obedience. Of course, that's true. But it was many theologians who said over and over, we're saved by grace alone, we're saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. The works of obedience follow true saving faith. And Saul shows us the consequence of not having that kind of faith. In Samuel's exhortation, he gives the readers in the context a hope for a better king than the one that they have presently. He actually says it twice over. It is better to obey than to sacrifice. And I have found, and God has found someone who is better than you. Of course, that's a reference to King David, who, praise the Lord, we're actually going to get to his part of the story and see some light in all of this darkness. But ultimately for us, it is the descendant of David who is the better king, the true and right David, the one who has come and laid down his life in perfect obedience to the Father. In Acts chapter 13, verse 22, Paul is preaching a sermon and he's talking about David and he's talking about how God has found him and God describes David in Acts 13, verse 22 as one who will do all my will. 
stark contrast to Saul's last big disobedience, right? Because he did part of the will of God. And ultimately, when you do part of the will of God, you're not doing any of it. Even David failed in regards to the will of God. But Paul is pointing not only to David, but pointing ultimately to Christ, the one who truly will do all the will of the Father, leaving nothing behind. The obedience of the Lord works in our heart, that works in our hearts, is due entirely to the active obedience of our Savior. When we talk about active obedience, we're talking about him living his life, dying our death, and rising for the victory of his Father. The active obedience of Jesus is such that we can, in one sense, say, hey, we have been saved by works, but not our works. We've been saved by the work of Christ, and our access to that work is by faith alone. The thing that Saul so desperately needed. Because there is no hope for obedience to God unless there is first grace in Christ for us. The starting point, the foundation the foundation of our prioritizing obedience to an unchanging God is our trust in the better king's obedience that grants us a kind of joy that is not a, a well, I guess i got to do this, but rather, a, sorry, <laughs> grants us an obedience that is not something that we just have to do, but an obedience that is saturated and covered with joy, with the matter of the delight of the Father. Saul was left hopeless and distraught over losing what he held so tightly But Christ brings us hope and joy in laying down what he held so loosely. He did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, and died on the cross. Christ brings us hope and joy in laying down his life, his position, his authority. Knowing Christ, we don't wish to change him, but we long to be changed into his image. And so that temptation in our hearts to want a changing God instead of the true unchanging God that is, is fixed when we see and know Christ in his glory. And he calls us then to do the same work that he is doing, to be brought into the work of God, the work of the gospel in the world. He says in John chapter 4, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. It was not a burdensome duty that Christ took upon himself when he came to earth, but it was a joyful expression of his love for the Father. It was, it was something to be illustrated with food, with something that is delightful and nourishing. I am nourished, I am equipped by the obedience to the Father. I am built up by the obedience of the Father. And so we enter into that work as Christ has brought it into us at the cross. Ephesians 2.10 says that we were made for good works that were set aside before so that we might walk in them. This is the changing work of God in us. Salvation. Not a change of plan, but a change of his dealings with man. This is from uh, the uh, systematic theology I've been reading recently. If you couldn't tell, obviously there's more theology in the sermon. Um, But the the guys' names are Beak and Smalley, which is just a great combo, it sounds like, right? They say that this work of God is not a change of plan, but it's a change of his dealings with man and a change that he had planned from the beginning for his glory and the salvation of his people. That is always the end goal of what apparent changes take place in God's work that never influence his ultimate plan. So let's talk about what we do in light of all of this. 
Simply put, we need to let the delight of the Lord prompt us to obedience. Let the delight of the Lord prompt us to obedience. Don't think after church today, man, I, I feel like dirt. I need to get my life together and start obeying God a little bit better. Rather, let the delight of God prompt you to that obedience. Let it launch you into a life of seeking to please him more than pleasing yourself, more than making your own plans, just saying, I want to simply obey God. God is delighted with obedience. We learn that in verse 22. Has the Lord such a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in to obey the Lord? Ultimately, what we should walk away with is if I would like to bring joy and delight to my God, I should walk in obedience. That is such a relief, church. We don't need to come up with something impressive to offer God. God isn't delighted as though he's affirmed by our obedience either. He is rather delighted because the joy that he intends to share with his redeemed ones is accessed by our obedience. If you feel that your Christian life is joyless, start walking in obedience. In one sense, it is true that if we have joyless faith, we're probably being disobedient. Not, not only and perhaps firstly to say that the rejoicing is a command over and over in the Bible, right? But perhaps there's something else that is off, so to speak. In Matthew 25, Jesus gives a wonderful parable that ends with servants who have obeyed their master being told, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Do you think about the joy of God when it comes to obedience? And that that is our end goal, our end reward, is to participate in the joy that he already has. Are you prompted to obey God by the joy that it will cause him? We'll end there for this morning. If you would bow your heads, please. I'll offer a prayer before we come to communion together. Holy Father, you are the glory of your people. You are the eternal, unchanging one, immutable. In our shifting moments, remind us of the change you are making in our lives. It is your delight that we obey. So we pray with the words of St. Augustine, as we have many times in the past, command what you will and grant what you command. Maybe it's true that our hearts have been prodded with some task you've laid before us that we've kind of laid aside, put on the back burner. Maybe it's the need for us to share Christ with someone. Maybe we need to make that apology and seek forgiveness to someone else. Maybe we need to set aside that so easily entangles us. Father, would you cause our hearts to long for the result of obedience, to experience your delight, just as we're going to sing in a moment. Then in fellowship sweet, we will sit at his feet or we'll walk by his side in the way. What he says, we will do. Where he sends, we will go. Never fear, only trust and obey. Grant that we might walk in that truth today, we ask in Jesus' name.